G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer and thanks for tuning in. Now today on the show, Owen Harries. Australia is a large continent to defend. It exists in a region characterised by a great deal of turbulence. As by far the most populous, powerful and wealthy country in the southwest Pacific, it properly assumes responsibility for stability in some of the smaller countries of the region which have serious problems. To meet these commitments, Australia spends under 2% of its gross national product on defence. It has an army of only 25,000 men. In these circumstances, for it to engage in serious military campaigns beyond its region as well, and to do so preemptively and when it is not directly threatened, is to leave itself open to the charge of being a cheap hawk which is a dangerous and irresponsible thing to be. Punching above one's weight may be a source of pride, but it is also hazardous and a form of activity best avoided. That was from the ABC Boyer Lectures in 2003 and the author, Owen Harries, who died last week at age 90. Now, Harries was a conservative Welsh-born academic, a Cold Warrior turned staunch critic of the War on Terror led by the Bush and Howard governments. Find out more about Owen Harries with Francis Fukuyama and Michael Fullilove. Plus, later in the show, Hamilton. This week, Disney releases a film of the popular musical. Stay with us for my discussion about Hamilton with Dennis Altman. Well, he was one of the architects of Australia's modern foreign policy, according to the Prime Minister and Foreign Minister. Kevin Rudd, the former PM, he told me he was a genuine public intellectual of whom we have few. Henry Kissinger, he wanted to plagiarise liberally at least one of his articles. Lee Sales, the prominent ABC journalist, she says he was the most delightful company and she was dazzled by his intellect. He was so highly regarded that Conrad Black, the former Canadian media magnate, he tells me, quote, he must have had a fault, but I never detected it. However, he had his detractors, the opponents of the Vietnam War, most notably Jim Cairns and Tommy Wren, and he disagreed profoundly with both the Bush and Howard governments, especially their decision to invade Iraq in 2003. As all this indicates, Owen Harries was a significant an interesting figure in the great foreign policy debates from the 60s to the first decade of this century. Now, to hear more about this leading foreign policy realist, let's turn to our panel. Francis Fukuyama is director of Stanford University's Centre on Democracy, Development and the Rule of Law. He's the author of The End of History and The Last Man, which is based on a 1989 article written for Harry's National Interest magazine. Hi there, Frank. Hi, how are you? Very good indeed. Now, Michael Fullilove is our next guest. He's the executive director of the Lowy Institute uh, in Sydney, and he's a former ABC Boyer lecturer. That was from 2015 on RN. Every year, Lowy hosts the Harry's Lecture that's named in honour of Owen Harry's. Hi there, Michael. Hi, Tom. Now, Frank, let's start with you as editor of the Washington-based National Interest magazine. Harry's published your End of History thesis. That was in 1989, before the fall of the Berlin Wall. Take us back to those days. 
Well, I met him first in 1988. I was at that time working at the RAND Corporation, a think tank in Santa Monica, California. And uh, we met at the Beverly Hills Hotel. He took me to a very nice lunch and was soliciting ideas for different kinds of articles. And as it turned out, I had been asked to uh, give a lecture in a series on the decline of the West uh, at the University of Chicago by uh, the former the late uh, Alan Bloom, a political philosopher. Uh, and I told them, well, I'm going to write an article, but it's not going to be about the decline of the West. It'll be more like the triumph of the West. Uh, and he said, sure, let's do it. And um, it was published in the summer of 1989, right as Eastern Europe was undergoing this unbelievable uh, transition. And as they say, the rest is history. And so... Uh, <laughs> It, uh, it and your and, and your and your uh, indeed and your essay catapulted both you and what had been a relatively obscure journal uh, to international attention, right? That's right, and I think both Owen and I were utterly uh, astounded that this had happened. Uh, but you know, that's uh, I think it's really a response to a very extraordinary juncture in in human history. And yet, Harry's although he'd been a cold warrior, he he was a realist who never really indulged in the triumphalism of. America's Cold War victory. Why do you think that was the case, Frank? Well, he wasn't an American to begin with. He was a Welshman. And I think he had a more European sense of the limits of power and the tragedy of war and all of these things that Americans very frequently forget, uh, given their uh, rather unusual history. Uh, And so he was skeptical, I think, both about the importance of democracy as a defining characteristic of American foreign policy, the need to promote democracy, and I think uh, the use of military power certainly uh, as a means of uh, achieving that. And that all came together in his opposition to uh, George W. Bush's Iraq War. Now, we're talking about 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the publication of Frank Fukuyama's End of History. Michael, you and I were in year 12 in 1989. We certainly didn't know know Owen Harris or know of him, but he came, he became a bit of a, a mentor of yours, among others. Tell us more about your experience with Owen and what he meant to you. Well, in the early 2000s, I was a young scholar at this new think tank, the Lowy Institute, and Owen was a non-resident fellow with the Institute. He was an elder statesman with a storied past, and he was good enough to spend a good amount of time with me and with my colleagues. He would read our draft papers. Uh, I was working on a book on Franklin Roosevelt, which he was nice enough to read. And I admired his writing. I loved the clarity and the elegance and the intelligence of his writing. But I suppose personally, I particularly admired his his ambition because he had the imagination and chutzpah to believe that he could influence the international relations of the most powerful country in history. And for an Australian, This was exciting. And always um, he encouraged my colleagues and I to be ambitious, to write on big central issues, not on small marginal ones. And I remember he once said to me, if you're going swimming, Michael, swim in the deep water, not the shallows. And I've always remembered that. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Now, he was a cold warrior, of course, uh, throughout the 60s, uh, leading opponent of the uh, supporter of the Vietnam War. And of course, uh, he, uh, he generated a lot of hostility on university campuses throughout the 60s and early 70s. And then, of course, he was a major figure in the, the Fraser government uh, before going to UNESCO and then having a horrible experience there. So horrible, he actually persuaded the Reagan and Thatcher governments to pull out of UNESCO. Um, Michael, he eventually became a critic of 
uh, the Pax Americana, a new American century, the idea of American global leadership. Why do you think he opposed both Bush and Howard on the war on terror? I think the Iraq war makes little sense in retrospect, and I don't think it made much sense in prospect. And so I think Iraq offended Owen's sense of prudence and discrimination and proportionality. It jarred with his understanding of history, as Frank Fukuyama um, referred to. I think it was a once-in-a-generation foreign policy decision, and Washington got it wrong. And I admired Owen uh, for his position. Um, he was going against most of his friends and his fellow travellers, which is an uncomfortable thing to do. And I would say, even for me, um, in at, my, at the beginning of my career, I... For me, Owen's opposition to the war provided me with some confidence and cover because all of my mentors and friends in Washington pretty much were supporting the war. The debate was more divided in Australia, but the Australian government and its advisers and cheerleaders were all in favour. I was opposed to the war, and so it felt comforting to know that someone of Owen's history and stature and intellect took the same view. Well, this is from the ABC Boyer Lectures of 2003. Here's Harry's on the fallacious case for a war on Iraq. Indeed, it was inconsistent and surprisingly incompetent, with dubious and shifting rationales being offered. One day, weapons of mass destruction. The next day, links with al-Qaeda. After that, the cruelty of the regime and the liberation of the Iraqi people. And then, Saddam's alleged reckless, unpredictable nature which it was claimed ruled out deterrence and required preemption. Given all this, caution, restraint and discussion, rather than eager and unqualified support, would have been an appropriate Australian response, appropriate indeed not only in terms of Australia's own interests, but that of its great ally. And it could have been accompanied by a clear statement of our need to give priority to dealing with terror where it was most likely to impinge on us. That is not in the Middle East, but in Southeast Asia. That's Owen Harris on the case against the Iraq war. Frank Fukuyama. You know, I think another factor at that time was a more personal one. Uh, Owen cultivated a group that would become famous as the neoconservative movement, uh, including people like William Crystal and Elliot Cohen and Norman Podhoritz that were almost messianic uh, promoters of that war. Uh, Paul Wolfowitz was the official in charge in the in the Bush administration that was the key advocate. And it's hard to explain at this juncture how, in a way, arrogant and self-confident this group of people were. They said, well, we'll get Iraq first, then we'll go on to Iran, and then Syria, and then North Korea, and we will use power to remake this entire part of the world. And I think that just offended Owen's sense of how the world works, that you know, power is really not able to shape political outcomes in that sense. And that's what it means to be a realist. You're a realist about your limits and you realize that you really cannot uh, 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 reshape the politics of places that are so deeply different from you culturally. Yeah, but to be sure, Michael, fully love uh, Australian supporters of the US-led invasion of Iraq. I think of John Howard, Alexander Downer, Tony Abbott, for instance. Uh, they would still say that because of Canberra's high-profile support for Washington, uh, that we built up a lot of credit in the United States and the American people, and that this justified Howard's strong support. Plausible? Well, it's more plausible, I think, in the Australian case, because 
the the judgments on Australian participation are not so clear cut. We didn't lose many soldiers. The financial impost for Australia, though significant, was not astronomical. And as John Howard said to the Lowy Institute in 2013 on the 10th anniversary of the war, um, alliance considerations were, were uppermost in his mind. So there, it's plausible, but I would say that and, and I would agree that an alliance is a serious matter and it requires us to support our ally, even in the hard cases, as we did by helping the Americans eject Saddam from Kuwait in 91 and the Taliban from Afghanistan in 2002. So I think those are important points, but an alliance doesn't require us to support our ally when our ally is in the wrong, when our ally is making a grave error. And that's what Iraq was. It made the United States weaker, poorer, less respected and less feared. And given that we rely on US power for our own security, we shouldn't have gone along with it. So to analyse it purely in terms of our reputation in Washington, I think you can argue, I think that's arguable. And indeed, even I noticed this week, Donald Trump was mocking John Bolton for still believing that that the Iraq war was right. But I think actually, if we really believe in the alliance, we should take a larger view and we should we should not go along with grave errors that our ally, ally is making and, 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 and acts of self-harm in which it is engaging. This is Between the Lines on ABC Radio National. My guests are Michael Fullylove from the Lowy Institute and Francis Fukuyama from Stanford. We're talking about Owen Harries. Now, for the, the first 20 years of the post-Cold War era, Owen... As you well know, Frank, you were, you were there, president at the creation of all this in the post-Cold War era. He was a leading critic uh, of not just the Iraq invasion and the war on terror, which we've just been discussing, but also NATO expansion, uh, the interventions in, in Bosnia and Kosovo. They were big issues in the mid-90s. Uh, any containment of China. Uh, Frank, uh, it's always hard to know these things, but how, do you, how would things be different if uh, US policymakers on both left and right, if they had followed the, the cautious, restrained realism of Owen Harry's? Frank Fukuyama. It, it's hard to it's hard to really know what would have happened under those different circumstances. I think some of those judgments were uh, wrong and some were right. For example, NATO expansion. Uh, I participated in those arguments. I was in favor of NATO expansion, unlike uh, unlike Owen. Uh, and I think actually, in light of what happened, you know, people blame the rise of Putin and current Russian nationalism on that. I'm not so sure. I think the people that lived closest to Russia, meaning the Balts, the Poles, the Georgians, you know, the Ukrainians, uh, had a, in a way, a more realistic understanding of the long-term uh, imperialism that was the trajectory of Russian foreign policy. And in a way, I think they saw more clearly the fact that, you know, uh, NATO expansion in a way was just an excuse for uh, uh, Russian um, uh, resentment or a means of legitimating a kind of revanchist attitude that was then fully expressed uh, in later years by by Putin. On the other hand, you know some of those cautions I think were were well taken. I think that American power has not been deployed well outside of Europe in general. Uh, I think in the Middle East we really do not understand that region, and uh, I think there was a you know, a broader reason to be careful in, in, in those circumstances. Okay, well, back to the end of history and, and today's what's been called the democratic recession. Here's Harry's again in 2003. 
At the time Fukuyama's article appeared, his own mentor and teacher, Professor Alan Bloom of Chicago University, expressed the view that fascism could well make a comeback. Others stressed the durable force of nationalism. More recently, I was interested to hear the Australian historian Geoffrey Blaney tentatively predict a revival of socialism in the next few decades. That was Owen Harries from 2003. And Michael Foley, love, what do you think is most likely to define the coming epoch? Well, it's hard to say, and I remember that Owen would always caution um, the young scholars at the Lowy Institute to resist the tyranny of the present. And just as he felt um, terrorism was overdone in the aftermath of 9-11, he would probably be cautioning us now not to overanalyze, for example, the effects of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, but I guess I would say, partly in homage to Owen, that the long-term trend since the end of the Cold War has been the rise of nationalism and the return of geopolitics. And we did think that a liberal international order had settled on the earth, but every day the liberal international order looks less liberal and less international and less orderly. And the contest between nation states has resumed and cooperation is declining. Um, now, there are countervailing factors, and in a way, international cooperation has never been more important. But I, but I think that the, the, the big trend that I've seen over the last, well, since the end of the Cold War, has been the persistence of the nation state, um, the return of nationalism, the, the resumption of geopolitics. So I think that's probably, um, that's, we, we can only see through a glass darkly, but, but but if you were to squint, I'd say that's what our future looks like. Nationalism, populism, socialism, illiberalism. Frank Fukuyama, your thoughts on the new era? Well, that's, uh, those are all possible. Uh, I think the opposite is possible. I think that the COVID crisis has laid bare a lot of inequalities, uh, a lot of big weaknesses in institutions, and a shock like this oftentimes is a spur to reform. Uh, and that's possible. I do think, however, in line with what Michael just said, that one of the long-term trends that actually to me is really quite depressing is the, the decline or the decay of the United States uh, as a world power. Uh, I think that, you know, I, I argued that this was going on well before Donald Trump's election, but I think that he has accelerated that process uh, very greatly. Uh, the bilateral comparison between China and the U.S. right now really does not make uh, the Democratic side uh, of the ledger look uh, very good. And I'm afraid that, you know, a lot of American allies are hoping and expecting that if Joe Biden wins the election in November, that the U.S. will snap back into its international role. I think it will in certain respects, or certainly formally, it's probably going to rejoin the WHO and you know, the Paris Accords and so forth. But in the longer run, uh, I think that there's been this great weakness that is basically our polarization. And that's mm -hmm. not going to go away, uh, even with a election of a, of a, uh, a democratic uh, president uh, in November. To be continued, Frank, Michael, thanks so much for paying your respects to Owen Harries. Thank you, Tom. And thank you. Thank you, Tom, for your, your great loyalty to him uh, throughout <laughs> his whole life. Well, thank you, Frank. And uh, let me just say, uh, Owen was probably the wisest bloke I've ever known. And, you know, I never completed a conversation with him without having been made to think about something that mattered. 
That's the mark of a true public intellectual. Gentlemen, thank you so much. That's Francis Fukuyama. He's the author of several influential books, including most recently Identity, Contemporary Identity Politics and the Struggle for Reconciliation. And Michael Fullylove, he's the executive director at the Lowy Institute, who in 2015, he himself delivered the ABC Boyer Lectures. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, this week, Disney released a film of Hamilton, a founding father of the US Republic. It's a classic. Have you seen or heard about it? Now, the musical at first came out in 2009. Barack Obama was president. And writing in The Conversation just recently, our next guest says, the optimism that accompanied the election of the first black president has given way to the grief and anger of Black Lives Matter. Now, to address Hamilton and to get his take on the state of America in 2020, let's turn to Dennis Altman. He's a professorial fellow in human security at La Trobe University in Melbourne. His many books include Gore Vidal's America, 51st State, Queer Wars, The New Global Polarization Over Gay Rights, and most recently, Unrequited Love. Hi there, Dennis. Welcome back to RN. Hello, Tom. Now, Hamilton is a musical drama built around the story of Alexander Hamilton, a prominent founding father. Uh, tell us more. Well, most of us probably were very unaware of Hamilton because he never became president, um, as many of the founding fathers did. But Hamilton was a young guy from the West Indies who got taken up as a protege by George Washington um, then became the first Secretary of the Treasury of the new United States. He played a major role in the discussions and debates that led to the drafting of the US Constitution. And most famously, I guess, he was killed in 1804 in a duel by Aaron Burr, uh, the Vice President. Um, and to and think Aaron American Burr, politics today represents toxic polarisation. <laughs> Go on. Well, well, let's hope that nobody in the current presidential round decides to take this as a direct model for how to resolve differences. Um, the, the musical actually ends, not surprisingly, with the duel. Um, and in fact, much of the, the story of Hamilton is told through the eyes of Aaron Burr, uh, who's, who's a major character in the production. Um, and I think what one has to say about Hamilton is it's quite extraordinary amount of political and historical information, much more than we would expect in a musical. So you get in some ways a very, very uh, clear picture of what led up to the war of independence, the politics thereafter. There's a scene in which you see that the horse trading that went on to ensure that the new capital of the US would be built uh, in what became Washington, uh, D.C. So in that sense, it's, it's a remarkable introduction to the history of the United States. Yes, and writing in the conversation, you say, quote, if Hamilton is innovative in its music and staging, its politics are in line with the dominant American myth that anyone can find success. Dennis Altman. Um, you know, that piece began because I'd started thinking a lot about the way in which the American musical is very much the ongoing American story of anyone can make it. You know, the classic American musical is 
is Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney uh, back somewhere in in Missouri uh, becoming Broadway stars. And Hamilton is part of that tradition. It's also part of a tradition that politics are often the central theme of a number of musicals. And and in the article, I point to some of the precursors of Hamilton, um, going way back to Showboat, uh, to a lot of Rodgers and Hammerstone. Um, People now may not realise that when South Pacific was first produced, it caused huge consternation uh, and was banned effectively in some parts of the South because of its depiction of interracial romance. Dennis Altman from Melbourne's La Trobe University, he's my guest, and we've been talking about Disney's release of the film version of the musical Hamilton. That's on July 3. Uh, Dennis, let's turn to the state of America. You're obviously down and out about America. You've had a long affair with America. Uh, you've lived there for about eight years of your life, I understand, and, mm-hmm. and, and you knew Gore Vidal, and you've written a lot about Gore Vidal. Yet your love affair with America is over. Why? I'm not sure it's totally over, you know, Great love affairs are never totally over, are they? But um, I guess that over the last few years, like a lot of people, um, I've watched in horror as the United States seems to have become increasingly unable uh, to meet the basic standards of, of good government um, and, and effective politics. Yeah, but one can surely loathe and deplore Trump and still admire the liberal progressive tradition in America. You think of the New York Times, the Washington Post, PBS, MSNBC, Harvard University, the Ivy League, all those galleries, the commanding heights of American culture, Dennis, they remain very liberal and progressive, correct? They do. I mean, we could we could spend a lot of time, for example, talking about Harvard University, where I spent a period as the visiting professor of Australian studies. But the reality is the combined weight of those liberal institutions really hasn't been, wasn't sufficient to stop the election of someone deeply, deeply unqualified to be president um, and has been very unsuccessful basically in checking his behaviour since he has been elected. Yeah, but if, if Joe Biden is elected in November and all the available public polling evidence at this stage points to a Biden victory and the Democrats control both houses of Congress and, and bearing in mind, of course, the demographics in America, which many, many uh, scholars have argued is moving in a more left direction, doesn't that cheer you up? Yeah, I would hope so. But, you know, I'm old enough to remember uh, the period of Richard Nixon. I think there was something of the same sense that the American system had failed. So I'm certainly aware of the fact it can bounce back. I'm not sure that Joe Biden has the either the personality or the drive to really bring United, the United States back. Uh, but as you say, if, if with him you get a Democratic Congress, there will certainly be a large number of shifts. I think most importantly, though, will that lead to yet a further polarisation? Will the 40% of the United States who are deeply committed to Trump feel that they've been robbed, that they've been cheated, become even more disenfranchised, more angry. Yeah, well, no, and notwithstanding all those internal weaknesses and divisions and limitations that you highlight, there's, there's a widespread view uh, emerging, certainly in this country, if you look at all the available polling evidence, that we need a strong, activist engaged America in Asia to counter a, a, a rising China. What's your view? We, we don't need to think of this only in terms of, of the offence against China. We need a strong United States 
for a whole set of global leadership issues. In previous global epidemics, Ebola, SARS, HIV, it was the leadership of the United States ultimately that made it possible to have real global reactions. And so I think what we need is the United States to come back. In that sense, you know, I'm almost prepared to to argue, as the previous Secretary of State did, that the United States is the indispensable nation. No other country has the the power, the economic, the military, the, the intellectual power uh, to provide that sort of leadership. Dennis, it's great to have you on the program. I hope we do it again. Dennis Altman from La Trobe University, and you can read his review of Hamilton, the musical turned into a new film, in the conversation. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer, and I hope you can tune in again next week. Thank you.